Well, good morning. I'm glad you're with us. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, you have found here a story that is considered one of the world's greatest tragedies. It takes place between Jesus and Messiah and probably the smartest man living on the earth at that time, none who had exceeded him in religious zeal or intellect, a brilliant, friendly, winsome fellow that was a man of conviction and of great power and authority who even uh, had risen to an elite level as not only a Pharisee but a member of the Sanhedrin. And of course his name is Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness and we begin in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit." And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus said to him, answering, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? And so here you have what is pictured a great tragedy. You have Nicodemus and his belief. He's coming to see Jesus as a great teacher, saying he is of God, and you see in the text that he is blinded. He is blinded. He has all of the information. He has all of the data. He has all of the ability to comprehend. He has everything. And when the new birth was expressed to him, and when it was explained to him, what he saw was something that was otherworldly that he couldn't explain. And Jesus then talks to him about the wind, and he can't even explain that with all of the wisdom that he has, all of the good doing that he took up. And so you see in verses 9 and 10 is bewilderment. He's completely bewildered. And so that's just the context of where we begin in verse 11, because now you see what is truly the greatest truth. The greatest truth. Over the past few centuries, in the lifespan of humanity, Living conditions have improved. Lifetimes have lasted longer, the life expectancy. Labor has been made safer and easier. Dreaded diseases that once were widespread are coming under control, such as smallpox and polio and various plagues since then. Mechanization in developed countries has taken the drudgery and danger out of work. And, in, and created jobs and, and higher production 
rates and, and met the, meed, the needs and of, of, a, of a growing global economy. And of course, there are still unresolved problems, including war and poverty. There are certain incurable diseases. There are certainly environmental concerns. There are social issues that must be faced. There are new problems that literally seem raised every day that are raised by technology. The very things that have made life easier report to us that things are getting more difficult and creating more problems. Because just with the rise of information through the cell phone are also the rise of mistruths and all kinds of ignoble things to be caught up in. And yet humanity continues to believe in the faith of progress. Humanity continues to believe in the faith of progress. And this faith in progress remains, remains unshaken. Many ardently believe that given enough time, science and technology and legislation will solve all of the world's problems. And indeed, mankind will finally have utopia and there will no longer be any discord, disharmony on this earth. But although mankind has made great strides in improving his living conditions, he still has a problem. It is a problem that pales in comparison to all the other ones. Well, actually causes all the ones to pale in comparison to it. And it is constantly and will always be eternally beyond the control of man. He will never, ever be able to solve the problem. He cannot do it on his own. It is the same insurmountable issue that confronted Adam and Eve after the fall, namely that all people, without exception, are guilty sinners. Without exception. They are guilty sinners before God, before a righteous judge, who will justly condemn them to eternal punishment in hell, as the Bible says, for violating His holy law. This is not a mystery to those who read their Bibles. This is just reward for unjust actions. Ever since Adam's disobedience plunged the human race into sin, Satan has ceaselessly promoted the lie that people can come to know God on their own, in their own way, in their own time. It is the greatest deception of the devil that you can come to know God your own way, in your own time. That it's up to you. Many of the greatest denominations of faith believe that it is still up to a man or a woman to decide if they will believe in the attributes, the justice, the mercy, the condemnation, the salvation, the very gospel of God that begins in Genesis 1 and ends in Revelation. This has influenced our society to its detriment because people given the choice to not choose will not choose. They love darkness 
instead of the light. And so the Bible is clear that unregenerate people cannot save themselves. You cannot do it. Their condition is utterly hopeless, humanly speaking. Nicodemus here is the most brilliant man alive, save one perhaps. And a, uh, and a, a colleague of his, a zealot to say the least, a young Pharisee probably at this time named Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus is a great figure in biblical literature, and indeed he is, I believe myself, the most brilliant man to have ever lived. And he is probably coming up and knew, and knew Nicodemus during this time, perhaps. But, under, but listen, the condition is utterly hopeless, humanly speaking. It's not hopeless, but it is hopeless, humanly speaking. They're, they are, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in trespasses and sin. We are un, unable to accept and understand spiritual truth because the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And there are as many proportionally in the church like that as there are outside of the church. The devil is in the business of making people blind. They are, as the Bible says, enemies of God. They are alienated from Him. They are disobedient to Him. They are ignorant to Him. They are hostile to Him. They are unloving towards Him. They are haters of Him. They are rebellious towards Him. They are subject to His wrath. They are on the path to destruction because they hate the light of spiritual truth. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear it preached. They don't want anybody to speak it with passion. They don't want it to cause anyone to be uncomfortable. They are, they, and hence they are blind to it. And the Bible says they are in fact as unbelievers children of Satan. They live under his control. They are members of his kingdom. And by nature they are the children of wrath. That is right there in Ephesians chapter 1. Or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. They are the slaves to sin, they are slaves to corruption, and as it says in Romans, they are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That is exactly what each one of us are the moment we, believe, we breathe. Every one of us. But see, the devil blinds you and says that's not true, and so you have to ask yourself the question, what is your authority? Is your authority the devil or is your the authority the Word of God? You see, the Word of God is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God unto salvation. But when you say, I don't believe this, when you say, I don't believe this, you're just demonstrating to yourself, unbeknownst to you, you're blind. You say, well, I, don't, I just don't agree. Well, that's fine that you don't agree, but are you willing to pay for it? Are you willing to pay for it with your eternity not to agree? That this is the autopsy of an unbeliever. This is in fact what it says. And in light of all of this, religious rituals, good works, and self-reformation cannot solve the problem of spiritual death. There's nothing you can do to solve the problem. There is only one thing that can be done, and it is a radical transformation. The Greek word is metamorphumatha. I only mention that because it is the word we get metamorphosis. And I use it as an illustration to take, you see a caterpillar, and what does he become through metamorphosis? 
a beautiful butterfly. But he cannot make it happen. It is a metamorphosis that takes place. It is something otherworldly that takes place. God gave us the butterfly to point us to Christ. You see, regeneration, the Bible says, is something God does. And He makes us a new creation. The, new is, the old is gone and the new has come, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And what is a shocking truth is that Jesus Christ confronted this zealous Pharisee Nicodemus right here with this very thing. All the Lord's teaching on the new birth was solidly grounded in the Old Testament. This concept of new birth, this metamorphosis, this new change, this change that comes upon you, that comes through God Himself, that makes you something different than what you are. Nicodemus, like maybe some listening, was incredulous. He was absolutely incredulous. He would not accept it. His religious efforts would have to be useless then. Everything that he had done, he would have to admit is a waste and needed to be abandoned altogether as a means to gain God's kingdom. That's how he viewed it. And consequently, Nicodemus responded here in unbelief. He responds in unbelief. He apparently walked away from his conversation with Jesus unconverted at this time. Now, his initial response typifies those who reject the gospel, and I want you to understand this. This man who has all of the knowledge, all of the religion, if he was a modern-day person today, he would be a seminary professor with multiple PhDs, being an interim pastor of a very large church, having a ministry on the side, traveling where everybody would want to come listen to everything he had to say. Okay, And he would have risen to the highest levels of his denominational associations. And this, if that was a man today, he would be that, like Nicodemus, he would be a man having accomplished all of that, profit, gaining the whole world, and would lose his soul. Now you think there is no such thing. My friend, <laughs> turn on your television. There is. The church world is big money. The church world is big money. Unrepentant unbelief is the sin that ultimately condemns the lost sinner. If you've ever wondered what the sin that condemns a lost sinner is, I just gave it to you. Unrepentant unbelief. Say it, unrepentant unbelief. That is the sin that condemns the lost sinner unbeliever. And so in this discourse, Jesus Christ is talking to Nicodemus about the message of salvation. But it's almost done from the antithesis. It's almost done from the opposite. Jesus addressed the problem of unbelief providing, and then he provided the answer for unbelief, and he warned of the result of unbelief. And so you have the world's greatest tragedy taking place right here in the conversation. Nicodemus is unpersuaded. He is an unbeliever. He is unpersuaded. Jesus is standing there. All of the study Nicodemus had ever done was to point him to the Messiah. Yeshua HaMashiach. 
He should have known. He should have known Jesus was the Messiah. Everything he had studied. But he had gotten caught up in everything else but what he had studied. And consequently, it is a great tragedy because standing there before him is the one he has given his life to prepare for him coming in. And he fails to understand even, even what he is saying. And so that's a tragedy. But then you move here then to verses 11 through 15 and you have the world's greatest truth. Look with me at verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whosoever believes in Him will have eternal life. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is the problem of unbelief. And while I'm talking to you about that, they're going to turn off the air conditioner. Amen? Amen. The problem of unbelief begins in verse, verses 11 and 12. Remember, Nicodemus has had this, this nighttime interview with Jesus. And after his question in verse 9, where he says, how can these things be? The renowned Pharisee added nothing more to the conversation. We hear nothing else from him as the dialogue between the two men went into a discourse of Jesus Christ. And although Nicodemus has twice professed ignorance of Jesus' teaching in verse 4 and verse 9, the real problem, as noted above, was the lack of, was not a lack of divine revelation. It was standing there in front of him. He was highly educated in the Old Testament. He had the ability to know and had just dialogued with the teacher who was the source of all truth. No, Nicodemus did not accept the truth. The problem of unbelief is that you do not accept the truth. You don't accept the truth which Jesus testifies because he refused to believe it, as it says in verse 11. Paul wrote, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The reality of it is, is even those who have never heard the gospel are still culpable of their ignorance because they reject the truth that they have been given. So the question may not be, is do you understand the text? It is, do you accept it? If you don't accept it, then you don't believe it. And that is the problem of unbelief. You will not accept the testimony, the autopsy of the unbeliever. Say, it can't be that way. You say, I don't believe the Word of God. I don't believe it's the Bible. I believe it's a book of fables. Guess what? That's a tragedy. That's a terrible tragedy. Well, I have to be this denomination, or I have to be this religion, or I have to do this, or this is the tradition, or this is the way I was brought up, and all that. It doesn't matter. If you don't accept the truth of the Word of God, then how can you accept the Word who is God? Right? It's the problem of unbelief. Unbelief is an issue of not accepting what the truth is. And so, because he refused to believe it, even though we, have, he, we see right here that in a statement... Introduced by the solemn declaration, look what Jesus says. Look at your text. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Now the plurals here, we and our, just just very quickly because of time's sake, the we and our that Jesus is speaking of is of our testimony encompasses both his disciples and John the Baptist. Okay? So that's why he says we and our. He is speaking of John the Baptist and the disciples who have understood and testified to the truth of the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Now, they provide a contrast with the we that is found in verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know. We know that you have come from God as a teacher. Now, here's what I want you to see. The we in verse 2 refers to Nicodemus and his colleagues. It refers to the religious elite. The Pharisees and their fellow Jews were ignorant of the new birth, but Jesus and his disciples were certain about it and certain of the regeneration, and it was a truth by which they testified. And moreover, Nicodemus spoke with human authority where Jesus spoke with heavenly authority. Okay? But they refused to, he refused to accept it as well as the Pharisees that were with him. And so the Lord's use then of the plural pronoun you here. This is you in the second person. He's in Texan. I won't give it to you in Greek. I'll give it to you in Texan. Y'all. Okay? So in Texan, the Lord uses the the plural y'all, which would be all y'all actually. Uh, The plural pronoun you indicates that he rebuked that his rebuke went beyond Nicodemus to include the nation of Israel for which Nicodemus was a representative of. So he is now speaking this to the nation. The Jewish, Jewish people did not accept the testimony of Jesus and his, true, and his true followers. You can read that in chapter 1. Their unbelief was what their was what perpetuated their spiritual ignorance. You will never arrive at spiritual intellect until you come to the place that you accept the truth of the Scripture as written. You may believe yourself to have command of it, but you will be light without heat. Because the reality of it is, you cannot... I, I saw this cartoon, far side cartoon, of two sloths. And these sloths, you like sloths, these two sloths were looking at a piece of cake that they cut, and, in, and then one sloth says to the other, now we wait. And the purpose of the cartoon is, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. And only sloths could probably get away with it. So the reality here is this. Jesus' rebuke is pointed, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This is a conundrum facing many today. And this shattered Nicodemus' self-righteousness right here. This blew him up. His shallow profession of faith that Jesus is a teacher sent from God was hereby made meaningless. It was, a, it was his misconstrued understanding of salvation has now been 
exposed because of his refusal to believe. He could not even fathom the earthly truth of the new birth, not to mention the profound heavenly realities that such a relationship of the Father to the Son and God's kingdom and His eternal plan of redemption. These things were beyond his capacity, even though, even though he had the highest IQ. And you see, there are two sides to Nicodemus' unbelief. One is intellectual and the other one is spiritual. All unbelief has those, has those two components. Intellectual and spiritual. Intellectually, while acknowledging Jesus to be a teacher sent from God, he was unwilling to accept Him as God. And spiritually, he was very reluctant to admit himself that he was a helpless sinner. Many people will never ever see the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven because they cannot come to grips that the autopsy of Scripture says they are dead in trespasses and sin. That they are at enmity with God and whatever. And they say, well, I don't believe that. Well, that's the problem with unbelief. You don't accept truth. You don't accept the truth. Since this was unthankful, thankful, unthinkable of a proud member of the Pharisees, this self-righteous, self-confessed, religious elite of Israel. Further, he was a privileged member of the Sanhedrin, and thus he was viewed as a prominent spiritual leader. I was studying uh, on Nicodemus, and I found that in history of the Jewish religion, they believed that only three men ever attained the level in accomplishment as Nicodemus. We don't know, I don't know who the other ones are. But they're not in the Bible. But I know this much. This man was the elite of the elite. And I think he was a guy that would be just as happy to have a bowl of matzo ball soup with you as he would be to walk down the street and talk to you. I, I don't want you to at all think disparagingly about Nicodemus because we know Nicodemus eventually changes. Nicodemus is one of the men that the day that Jesus Christ comes off the cross... On the day of the Passover, it is Nicodemus who goes and defiles himself and touches the body with Joseph of Arimathea and lays him in the tomb, and no doubt he was in the upper room. He had nowhere else to be because he would have been stripped of his authority. But he wouldn't care. He had become a follower. He had become a believer. And we see another picture of him in John chapter 7 where he is defending Jesus. So I don't want you to think that Nicodemus is a problem. But I'm going to tell you this. Nicodemus eventually got it. What is sad is that most will not. They think the gospel is too hard. I want you to know something. The gospel is not the gospel if it does not offend you. It's just like there's only two kinds of preachers today those who preach the Bible, and those who need to resign. That's it. Those are the only kind of preachers today. Those who preach the Word of God, and those who need to resign. The reality is here is this gospel's hard. The reality of unbelief is a problem. And to humble himself to admit that he was in spiritual darkness and needed to come to the light of true salvation and righteousness would have been to confess his sinfulness, his lack of righteousness, that many were impressed with Jesus, like many that were impressed with Jesus' miracles, Nicodemus refused to commit himself to Christ the Lord. So let me tell you a story about a missionary doctor who goes and works amongst an unfound, unreached 
tribal group in the Amazon. And this missionary doctor goes to this place, and he, while he is there ministering to these people, medicine and the gospel, he finds the people begin to start dying all of a sudden. They begin to physically die. And he does not know, and they're burying their workers. They're burying the people that go out and hunt and fish and do all these things. And so he doesn't know what to do. And so what does he do? He takes a water sample, and he goes to his, his, all of his belongings, and he pulls out a microscope, and he puts the microscope down and puts some water on the microscope and he looks in it and there you see all of the vile and all of the filth and everything in the water that is poisoning the people and he asks the people of the tribe to come look through the microscope and they say oh and they see all of that stuff and they look in there and they see oh wow that's the problem is the water and so that night they all went to bed and when the camp was completely silent they hear this crash, bang, and shattering, and no more sound because the next morning, one of the tribesmen went in and found the microscope, shattered the microscope, and said, no microscope, no problem. He would not accept the truth. And what did it lead to? So don't preach an offensive gospel. Don't preach the word. Don't do the things that lead to godliness, righteousness, and holiness. Don't do those things. Because if you do those things, you'll make us peer through the microscope. And we don't want to look at the microscope of our true situation. So therefore, if you don't talk about it, we don't have a problem. That was the reasoning of Nicodemus. Get rid of the microscope. No microscope, no problem. That's a tragedy. But see, he's telling the greatest truth in the world. You have the problem of unbelief, and now we talk about the answer to it. In verses 13 through 17. Only someone who has been in heaven can truly know what it's like. And human beings sort of death do not have the ability to visit heaven since they are confined to time and space. Thus Jesus said, no one who ascends into heaven, he says there in verse 13, because it is humanly impossible to do so. Uh, he, he talks about Jesus. John, for example, declares in, a, in, in the prologue of the gospel, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. So not anyone who has seen the Father, Jesus says, except the one who is from God, He has seen the Father. That's John chapter 6. Another person that's been to heaven and back, the Bible says, is the Apostle Paul who was caught up into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. The only one possessing true knowledge of heaven in reality is the one who descended from heaven known as the Son of Man, which is Jesus Christ. And so it is in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, and I have all of these Bible verses that speak about Jesus having come from heaven speaking to us. And I'm just going to move on from there. I have 14 or so. But speaking of 14, look at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. Now this is a reference to something that happened in the Old Testament that he is telling to Nicodemus. It comes from Numbers 21. He, he appeals to an Old Testament illustration to make the point, further emphasizing that there is no excuse for Nicodemus' unbelief. There's no excuse for it. His problem. 
And so he is an expert in the Scripture, and to be ignorant of the way of salvation is very interesting. And so you have here in Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9, I'm not going to read it, I'm just going to tell you what it's about. The people have been struck by a bunch of serpents because God has had enough of their incessant, unending complaining. They're constantly complaining. They're wandering in circles out in the Sinai Peninsula, and they are incessantly complaining, and the Lord sent venomous snakes to infect their camp, and in desperation, the Israelites begged Moses to intercede on their behalf. And Moses' prayerful petition was answered with a display of divine grace. They were going to be given something they did not deserve. And they were going to be treated with mercy. They were going to be lifted out of their misery. And God would show both grace and mercy to the rebellious people. And he instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent, a replica of a snake, and to raise it above the camp on a pole. Now, I don't know why he chose it. I don't know. I, didn't, I haven't taken the time to study it. But I do understand this. Those who, who were bitten by the snakes could look at the bronze serpent, and according to God, and, and looking at it, they would be acknowledging their guilt and expressing faith in God's forgiveness and healing power. So here's what's happening. There you are, you're walking around in circles, and you've been bitten by a snake because you are guilty like the rest of complaining incessantly. And so a remedy has been given to you, and it is this bronze thing. But you know what? People are sitting around at lunch saying, you know, are you going to go look at that snake? I'm not going to go look at that snake. I don't want to do that. Are you going to do that? I'm not going to get the snake look. I'm just call it the vaccine, I guess. I'm not going to do that, and it has nothing to do with it. Completely different. But anyway, that I, I could probably work that into something, but I'm not. Uh, this is, this is just what it is. And so here's what it is. You can go look at it, you can look at it, and you can be healed. That's what can happen to you. But everybody's going to see you did it. Because you have to go physically look at it. I mean, we're talking about three million people here. It's not like they raised up and you were on the mile, for, uh, you were a mile or two away and you can go look at it. You had to go to the camp and look at the serpent. Where are you going? I'm going to go look at the serpent. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to do that. No way. Are you kidding? Huh. And so here's what happened. The people that wouldn't go didn't believe in its effect. They did not believe. So what happened to them? They died. Not everybody's going to look. Not everybody's going to get the vaccine. Not everybody's going to make a choice you're going to make. Not everybody's going to give their life to Christ. Not everybody's going to do it. We see this here, but those who did look, what happened to them? They went and they looked and did as Moses ex ex said. You have to express your guilt. I'm guilty. You have to express your guilt. You have to acknowledge your guilt. Express faith in God's forgiveness and healing power and what happened to them. Everyone who went and expressed their guilt and looked at that was healed. Now, what was that a picture of? That was a foreshadowing of Calvary's cross, which we talked about last week. So here is the point of the analogy. Jesus is telling Nicodemus right here, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so that so, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, as he will be soon. And the term must be emphasized that Christ's death was necessary part of God's plan of salvation. He had to die a substitute. 
As the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And so the stricken Israelites were cured by obediently looking under the serpent apart from any works of righteousness of their own or any hope they might have had. And upon they had to look upon God in dependence on God's word of, the, of what would take place with the elevated serpent. It is no different today. You have to look no other place than to God and look away from your own dependence. You cannot make it your way. That's the problem of unbelief. But God has provided the answer for unbelief. And it's faith. You see, here's the idea. In essence, eternal life is the believer's participation in the blessed, everlasting life of Christ through his or her union with Him. And so Jesus defined eternal life in His high priestly prayer. And this is what He says. Jesus in John 17 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is life to the age to come, and believers will most fully experience it in, in perfect, unending glory. And so you come not only, and what we have had is the world's greatest tragedy and the world's greatest truth, but now you come to, I think we would agree, in one verse, the world's greatest text. John 3.16 it is undoubtedly the most familiar and beloved verse of all Scripture, yet its very familiarity means it has died at the death of a billion qualifications. It can cause profound truth that has caused the profound truth of the verse to be overlooked. God's motive for giving His indescribable gift of Jesus Christ was that he loved the evil, sinful world of fallen humanity. Now you think about that. There's not many things I love that are evil and fallen. God loved the evil, sinful world of fallen humanity. He loved it. He loves it. As noted above, all humanity is utterly sinful. It is completely lost. It is unable to save itself by any ceremony or effort. You cannot go to Mass enough. You can't go to confession enough. You can't go to church enough. Nobody's ever tried to give enough that I've ever experienced in my ministry. <laughs> you, cannot, you cannot pray enough. You can't say, beat your chest that you know as much as anybody else. You can't. Do it. It's impossible. Thus there was nothing in man to attract God's love. Rather, his love is because he sovereignly determined to do so. You just need to realize that. He just sovereignly determined to love you, period. And so the plan of salvation followed the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind in Titus chapter 3. God demonstrated His own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To me, that's, that's the entire hinge of, of the book of Romans, which is the doctrine of grace. John wrote in the first epistle, in his first epistle, not the gospel, but 1 John chapter 4, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. We love because He loved us. So this love is vast. 
It's unbelievable. And our Lord is saying that for all of the world, there is only a Savior. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And when He talks about the word world, He is not talking about geographical location. When it says, for God loves the world, that He loved everything in and of the world. We learn this from context. And this is why John 3.16 has become so familiar to so many people because they have misunderstood it. The word, word world here, listen, if you look at it this way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, the Bible said God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not in the sense of universal salvation, but in the sense of the world has no other reconciler. That's the first thing you need to know. There is no other way to be saved in this world except through Christ Jesus. Now, you might go down to the local steakhouse, S-T-A-K-E house, and go down there and ask them, and they'll tell you, no, there is another way to be saved, but that is not true. Not this world. And not all will believe, because he goes on to say in verse 20, Therefore we are in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ as through God, we're making an appeal to us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So there are no words in the human language that can adequately express this kind of love. We can't do it. Even the apostle cannot do it. He talks about it being indescribable because God only, he gave his only begotten son, the one whom he declared, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's given us all things in his hands. He is highly exalted. He has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And he is the one who has enjoyed the intimate fellowship with God for eternity and the Father gave His only begotten Son to die as a sacrifice on behalf of sinful men. He made Him who knew no sin to be our sin on our behalf, wrote Paul, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 As I've told you, my favorite verse. In this majestic prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, you see the Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ coming, of sending his of God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, coming in, in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, and so forth and so on. And God graciously brought this gift of salvation, which is freely and only available to whoever believes in Christ. So when it says he died for the whole world, he didn't die for those who will not believe. The text says, on whosoever believes. Our salvation is a, is a purchased salvation, not a potential salvation. Our salvation is a purchased salvation, not a potential salvation. Would you th Listen to how unfair this would be. You live your life under the idea that you could potentially be saved. And then you never hear the gospel which you'll never be saved apart from the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So if you could live under the potential of being saved and never have access to the key that unlocks it, then therefore what unfairness would be done to you? But salvation has been purchased for the whosoever will, as the text says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever will believe. It doesn't say you have it potentially. 
It's purchased. Okay? So here's the guarantee. Genuine salvation can never be lost. True believers will be divinely preserved and will be faithfully preserved because they are kept by God's power. If, God can, if Jesus can save you, then Jesus can keep you. And if He can't keep you, then He can't save you. That's just a little bit of philosophy. So then you have the world's greatest verse, the world's greatest text, and now you come finally to the world's greatest test. The world's greatest test. He says in verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is a judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, and their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. This is the greatest test. A human test anyone can find. I was talking to a buddy yesterday. We were talking about joining the French Foreign Legion. You can be a criminal. You can be a deserter from your own army, from your own nation. All they say is show up in France. There's a few recruiting places. We will take you in immediately. You will be cowsed, clothed, and fed. No questions asked. If you can get into France, you don't even need a COVID vaccine. You don't even need that to get into the, into the, to the uh, whatever I called it, the French Foreign Legion. If you can get there, you've got a pretty good, pretty good chance of making it. And we were talking about that. You want to escape from your past? Go join the French Foreign Legion. Okay? You can do that where everything... It goes away, and to become a legionnaire, about 6% of the people that go to the legion make it. I think the Marine Corps has a better acceptance rate than that. I'm not sure. But the legion, you got about a 6% chance of making it. And so they feed you, they house you, they take care of you, and if you make it, it's four months of absolute H-E double hockey sticks on earth. They send you to Africa, and they teach you to live without water, Eating rattlesnake tails, I guess. And uh, you will perish. God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world. I, I find it interesting when people hear the gospel, they say, I feel so condemned. You should. You are condemned. But don't stop there. You are condemned. But Jesus didn't come to the world to double down on that and to say, I'm going to condemn you again. He says right here, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It doesn't matter what lifestyle you're in, what choices you have made, what you're doing. What will send you to hell is unrepentant unbelief. Jesus can take care of the rest of it. But unrepentant unbelief will separate you from God forever, and usually unrepentant unbelief is based on you don't accept the claims of Christ. And so God will judge those who reject His Son as I would, as you would. Nothing makes me happier than people to talk about my kids. 
Nothing can just rise up and if, if I choose to, to go down this path of negative emotion can bring it out than if somebody hurts my kids. How much more God? So the reality is, point it, Jesus was coming not to redeem Israel, and he was, not coming to, he was not coming to curse the Gentiles. He says, but that the world might be saved through him. Who is the world? The whosoever will believe. Do I know who they are? No, I do not. So therefore, what does that mean? You preach the gospel to everyone. You let God sort it out, because he's going to sort it out anyway. So we have the problem of unbelief, very quickly. We have the problem of unbelief, the answer for unbelief, and the result of unbelief. The result of unbelief is simply this. God graciously has offered the world salvation through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's it. That salvation has not been appropriated except by penitent faith, saying, I repent of my unbelief. For all who respond to the gospel with unbelief, their final doom is set by divine judgment. If you respond to the gospel this morning with unbelief, that is your doom. That is, you are like Nicodemus. You're so bright, so wonderful, so friendly, so smart in everything, but wherever you are and whoever you are and how much ever you've accomplished and how much ever you've done in the church or how much ever you've done, if you reject the gospel, you're doomed. You're doomed. I don't believe that. That's the problem of unbelief. You don't accept the truth. On the other hand, he who believes in Christ is not judged. The Bible says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed from death unto life. Now why would he say was passed from death unto life when they're living when they hear that? Because we are dead in trespasses and sin, but when we believe, what happens? We're passed from death unto life. The Romans, Paul wrote to the Romans, to the Romans, Paul wrote triumphantly. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who will bring charge against God's elect. God, who is God, is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who makes intercession for us even now? That's the result of belief. But we're talking about the result of unbelief. One who does not, he goes on to say in the text, one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten of the Son. You see, the lost are condemned because they have not believed. Now, let me, let me tell you this. I won't use the Greek word, but let me just tell you what this means. Look in your Bible there where it says, not believed. It's in verse 18. He who does not believe. Not believe in the Greek means this. Believed into. Believed into. It's right there in verse 18 twice. Does not believe into has been judged already because he has not believed into the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's how they understood it. Believe into. Let's put it in terms we understand. Buy into. Put your money where your mouth is. They haven't bought in. They haven't believed into it. So maybe you assent to it. You have a mental assent. You know George Washington lived right. 
Did George Washington really cut down cherry trees? I believe that, but I don't think he did. I believe in Napoleon, right? Napoleon lived. He was a little short man that took like this in there. And, uh, and he lost at Waterloo. I saw photos of Abraham Lincoln in his casket the other day. He looks exactly like he's always looked. I believe Abraham Lincoln was one of the greatest presidents in the history of the country. Number 16. I assent to it. But I haven't bought into it. I haven't bought into it. I haven't believed into it. I believe it. I have mental assent. Jesus Christ, on the other hands, well, other hands, I've given my whole life to it. I've given my life to it. Feast and famine. I've given my life to it. That's what we're talking about, is giving your life to it. Not giving your life to the church. If folks gave their life to this church, and folks were here, we were packed, we would be just a synagogue of Satan. But if folks come here and they give themselves to Jesus, then that constitutes a church. That constitutes a church that's a righteous, holy body that the Bible calls the bride of Christ. And so let me just show you this. I'm just going to end. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name. This is the judgment. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And by doing so, it enlightens every man. People feel, they feel consternation in the presence of someone that begins to peel back the layers of sinfulness, begins to shine the light into the areas that they don't want anyone to see, and they begin to shrink. People refuse to come to the light because they love the darkness more than they love the light, and they're deep because their deeds are evil. They don't want to be seen. And so as noted earlier in the chapter, unbelievers are not ignorant. Listen, here's the thing. Here's the proof. This shows you something. Unbelievers are not willfully ignorant. They willfully choose to reject the truth. And the proof of it is they hide their sin. You know why, Robert? They know it's wrong. And the light of God shines upon us. And then the gospel comes. The greatest thing you can do is throw your hands up and surrender and say, God, I'm a sinner. Save me. I have learned to begin praying this way. And this is what I pray. Lord, save my finances. Lord, I need you to save this area of temptation. I need a Savior for my my emotions in this area. Not just save me from my sin, save me from myself. I need a Savior for everything. And it's amazing because He guards your heart and your mind in doing that. And then peace comes upon you. But it's not the peace of the world. It's not the peace of the release of serotonin. It's the peace of God that passes all understanding. 
and anxiety and anxiousness. Anxiousness begins to go away and fear goes away. Why? Because we believe into this man, Jesus. We believe into Him, not about Him. And so, here's what happens. The result of the problem is darkness. The one who practices the truth, however, will willingly come to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. You see, you can't come to the light unless it's wrought by God. And your prayer needs to be, God, Lord, here I am, a sinner, looking to you. Help me, my unbelief. And let Him do the rest. Let Him do the rest. The evidence that you're saved is not that you prayed. The evidence of salvation is that you follow Him. But this text doesn't say that. The text says you have believed into Him. You have paid into. You have bought into. All of this didn't make sense to Nicodemus. Except it did. Because later on, Jesus is being tormented by the Pharisees and Nicodemus comes and defends him. He said, whoa, hang on a second. And then at the very end, Nicodemus decides, you know what, I'm a sinner. I've got these robes, the phylacteries. I have all of these things. I'm of the Sanhedrin. And my Savior just died on that cross and someone needs to carry Him to the tomb. This is the most holy day of the year of us. But that doesn't matter because we're not saved by the blood of goats and bulls. We've been saved by the Son of God, by His blood. For the shedding of blood, there can be, without it, there can be no remission of sins. So he said, hey, hey, Joseph of Arimathea, I'll be right there. I'm down for it. Hey, I'll grab this arm if you'll grab that arm and let's take him because this isn't it this is the end of my career but it's the beginning of my new life what happened to him the moment he touched the corpse of Jesus Christ it was over but if Nicodemus had stood there and looked at Jesus Christ on the cross his side having been pierced his head now like this drooling Blood from his head that is now, by this time, smells. The crows and the vultures are already taking care of the other two at this point, their legs having been broken. If Nicodemus had done this, George, and he looked there and he said, you know, all of these things, and he would have turned around and walked away, he would have done like most people do. No microscope, no problem. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It is... This story contains in it the greatest tragedy. But you know what's a greater tragedy than Nicodemus not believing? that Jesus Christ offers Himself to you and you will not accept what He has to say. 
it is the greatest truth that's ever been told. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. He hasn't come to save people that got it together. He's come to save the most broken, beaten down, messed up, mixed up. I mean, there are levels of messed upness today that we have never understood. But you know what? If you could open the heart and look inside, they're as old as time. Man wants darkness instead of the light because our deeds are evil. And it's the greatest truth. God has come to answer the problem with what the greatest text. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so is left then the greatest test the world has ever known. The greatest test you will ever face in life is will you believe into Jesus Christ? That's the greatest test you'll ever face. Jesus Christ was lifted up. And this Easter Sunday, like all over the world, Jesus Christ is, I hope, I pray God, in the pulpits lifted up before men and women, and people are drawn to Him. But it is because He was lifted up that He paid the penalty for our sin and He purchased a place in heaven for us. And God said it was good and He raised Him from the dead that Jesus is no longer on the cross but in those who believe He is both in their hearts and at the same time seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. Not only does it say He makes intercession for you, He longs to make intercession for you. Because you know why? Jesus Christ believes into you. And if Jesus had thrown his microscope away, we wouldn't even be here. He could have just blown the world up. But instead, he said, I'll save them. And so he stepped out of eternity into time. And he came and he gave his life that you may give him, his, give him your life, and he would in turn give you his. That's the gospel. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. Its truth is sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides the bone and the sinew. It is, it is absolutely cuts to the quick. And Father, I pray that, that, that the stench of death would of our own death would rise up in our nose because we are held in captivity to death without Christ. But I pray that you would this moment change it through faith and belief of believing into Jesus Christ, into the sweet-smelling aroma offered up to the Lord. We pray, Almighty God, that anyone here, only you know, only you would know, that in the depths of their heart, Father, if they have never come to that place in their life where they can identify that they are followers of Jesus Christ and His way, they have rejected unrepentant unbelief. They have come to the place of saying, wherever He leads, I will go and will do so. That they will believe into Him. That they may have all of Him. It is my prayer today that you would raise them from death to life. 
that through that they may confess Jesus as Lord. And through that they may call upon him and be saved. The evidence which will be seen by repentance. Turning from sin and self and trusting in Christ alone. That is, after all, the message of Easter. It is the most holy, holy of messages. And I thank you that we have had time to listen to what some call the old-time religion to be offered up today as an offering to you, knowing that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We ask this believing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord's countenance be lifted upon you and give you peace. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things for Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Love you. Nice.